This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. We enter the holiday season betwixt and between. On the one hand, new COVID cases are hitting record highs. On the other hand, we're assured new vaccines are on the way. So will they provide the speedy, life-saving shot in the arm we're all hoping for? Just one of the questions David Pogue will be answering in our Sunday Morning cover story. 2020 began with COVID, but it's ending with the promise of safe, effective vaccines. It's highly likely this could be one of the key steps in turning back the pandemic. But first, a few obstacles to overcome. I really worry about people not understanding. Once I got that shot, I should be good, right? Not so fast. The cold, hard facts about the new vaccines ahead on Sunday morning. We're in conversation this morning with actor and producer George Clooney, whose newest film is a science fiction thriller about the future of humanity. He talks with our Tracy Smith. It's a spaceship that we hoped would be our future. I have to warn them about the conditions on Earth. George Clooney has a new look, a new movie. Is anyone out there? And a daily routine just about every parent can relate to. What gets you out of bed now? Well, there's twins that do. Every morning at 7, bang, (laughs) on my head. At home with George Clooney, later on Sunday morning. Friends in Need is a story from Rita Braver. 
featuring a trio of actresses bringing much of themselves to their new movie. <laughs> Meryl Streep, Diane Weist, and Candace Bergen know there's plenty to be learned from a film starring three women of a certain age. We're more able to engage in a more brutal honesty. And it's uncharted territory. Maybe we're interesting just a little bit, right? Mm. Maybe. I wouldn't push it. I wouldn't push it, but maybe. Ahead on Sunday morning, three leading ladies. (laughs) John Blackstone shares a young photographer's album of the homeless. Faith Saley watches the rise of the rascally raccoon. Plus stories from Moraka and Kalafasane. Thoughts from Jim Gaffigan and Dr. John LaPook. And more on this Sunday morning after Thanksgiving, the 29th of November, 2020. We'll be back in a moment. vaccines we're hearing about provide a shot in the arm in the fight against COVID? Well, that depends. Our cover story is from David Pogue. Well, this is exciting. This says that there are now three coronavirus vaccines with effectiveness from 90 to 95 percent. You know what this doesn't say, though? How they'll be distributed or how we get them or what they'll cost or how soon they'll end the pandemic. So I've decided to ask some experts, now that we have the vaccine, what next? I've uh, spent a career of over 35 years in vaccine development, and I can't recall ever seeing a respiratory virus for which a vaccine provided this high a level of efficacy. Dr. Bill Gruber is the head of vaccine development at Pfizer. He oversaw the tests of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine on 44,000 volunteers. His team learned the good news that it was 95% effective on a Zoom call. They had tears in their eyes. This was an extraordinary, extraordinary moment. The new so-called RNA vaccines use a new approach. Instead of giving you a dead or weakened version of the virus itself, like the measles and chickenpox vaccines, these contain only a tiny fragment of the virus. So it trains your immune system to basically fight off the virus when it encounters it in the future. This is a watershed moment in two respects because obviously it's safe and effective for coronavirus, but it also could really be a pivotal moment in the ability to develop better vaccines. Pfizer tested several different formulas for the vaccine, or constructs as they call them. We didn't know which one would work best. We moved very methodically, but expeditiously. But developing the vaccine is only the first hurdle. Now you've got to ship it out to people. It goes from the manufacturers to their distributors to the CVSs and Walgreens and Rite Aids of the world to doctors' offices directly. And you have to keep it cold. Some of the vaccines are getting down to minus 70 degrees Celsius. Minus 94 Fahrenheit. Ultra cold. At scale, that would be unusual. Thomas Teig is the CEO of Direct Relief, a nonprofit that distributes medicine to community health centers and free clinics. He introduced me to the concept of the cold chain. Welcome to the cold room, Mr. Bond. If you buy ice cream, you're receiving food through a cold chain. It's 
manufactured. It's kept cold till it gets to the distribution center of your grocery store where you are the picker and packer and you are your own last mile. If the FDA gives approval to the new coronavirus vaccines, some of them will soon be crossing the country in boxes like these. Slides in. Surrounded by super frozen slabs. We can monitor what the temperature inside the box is. This actually has a GPS tracker in it. If it ever went out of temperature range, you would know where it was when it went out of range. These are actually one-time use boxes and devices. What kind of grand total are we talking about? All in with sometimes two or three of these data loggers in different positions, about $300 for the packaging material alone. And for use on planes and trucks? On a forklift, you could bring this. It's got its own battery. There's this self-contained, battery-powered shipping freezer. It's rated for minus 20 Celsius, minus 4 Fahrenheit. It does seem like there's a big difference between the Pfizer vaccine with its minus 94 requirements and the Moderna, which could survive in a lot of these existing cold technologies. The temperature difference is significant. The next challenge is making enough of the vaccine. Pfizer, Moderna, and the other pharmaceutical companies are already making their vaccines in huge tanks 24 hours a day. In fact, they started months ago, even before the trials were complete. you got to come up with 330 million doses. Oh, no, no, it's much more than that. We should be thinking 10 times that much, at least as a starting point. We should be thinking 3.5 billion doses. Harvard Business School professor Willie Shi is an economist and an expert on manufacturing. A lot of the carriers like FedEx, like UPS, like DHL, they've been building these freezer farms in anticipation of having to ship larger quantities of COVID-19 vaccines at very cold temperatures. The bigger problem, he says, will be managing our expectations. The pandemic won't end once you get your shot. I really worry about people not understanding, once I got that shot, I should be good, right? I, I can go back out to dinner, I can get my hair cut, you know, I can go to the gym, not so fast. Certainly until we get broader immunization, people are still going to have to wear masks. And they're still going to have to practice social distancing. I don't think the American public is ready for that yet. I was probably with a lot of the country thinking, this is the beginning of the end of the pandemic. No, only when the contagion rate goes down will we get back to some semblance of normal. And that's going to take a long time. The government plans to allot the vaccines to the states according to their populations. The vaccine will be free to all. The CDC will recommend giving it first to healthcare workers and older Americans. If all goes well, by the spring of 2021, a vaccination will be available to anyone who wants one. But the question is, will enough people want one? Convincing people to get vaccinated is going to be our biggest challenge of all. Dr. Celine Gounder is an epidemiologist at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine and Bellevue Hospital. In the United States, we have a history of vaccine skepticism. You have people who don't want to be told by the government what to do. You have people who don't trust pharmaceutical companies. You also have communities of color that have a long distrust of the healthcare system. This might seem like a really dumb question, but what are people worried about? People are afraid about side effects. They're afraid that they might get sick. I've even heard uh, theories that people think this is a vaccine for mind control. A lot of this is all over the map. We have a really tough road ahead in terms of convincing people that is not the case. So you're a member of President-elect Biden's advisory committee on the coronavirus. Is there a plan in place for addressing some of the skepticism? 
we're going to have to think outside the box here and be a bit creative. This is something that we haven't had to do here before. Do you envision public service announcements and celebrity endorsements? That's not really thinking that far outside the box. I think you're going to have to see a lot of more grassroots community outreach, partnering with local leaders, people who are trusted by the community. Well, let me ask you this. Dr. Selene Gounder on national television, would you take the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine for you and your family right now? I will likely be among the first who are lining up to get it. I am a frontline healthcare worker, so I would really love to get vaccinated before I have to put myself at risk in that way again. You're not worried about mind control. <laughs> I'm not worried about mind control. The reputation of the AstraZeneca vaccine has suffered because of reporting and testing irregularities. But as for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, the whole story seems improbable. The stakes were high, society was shut down, and somehow, in the clutch, researchers and scientists came up with a new kind of vaccine that they say is 95% effective in a matter of months. I asked Pfizer's Bill Gruber how that was even possible. We live in a remarkable age. Science has really progressed to a point where we have the tools to do this type of thing, and we have the dedicated people to do it, people who've dedicated their lives. You know, everybody's rowing together, and it's a really extraordinary thing. It would not have happened without that. Where most of us see obstacles and limitations in this time of COVID, some of our fellow creatures see opportunity. Faith Saley considers the curious case of the very curious raccoon. While millions of us these days settle in, these critters, with their masks on, venture out. In fact, this is kind of the interesting thing about the coronavirus is that now people are beginning to see animals that they didn't see before. We were very close to him. We're going to loop back around again. Stan Garrett is a professor at Ohio State University and has tracked raccoons for over 20 years. We put radio collars on them and we follow them as they move around the city. I've watched my study animals disappear as they were riding on top of a garbage truck. <laughs> I've had people email me and say that raccoons are evil geniuses out to destroy them. They're not. <laughs> raccoons are not evil geniuses. They are not even geniuses. They are lovely little critters trying to make a living. Suzanne McDonald teaches psychology and biology at York University in Toronto and says that raccoons' uniquely sensitive front paws, some might even call them creepy hands, are part of their success as a species. If you see a raccoon in the river where they evolve, they put their hands under the water and they feel food. It's why raccoons are commonly thought to wash their food. They don't really wash their food, even though their scientific name actually is the bear who washes with their hands. The ends of their paws are more sensitive underwater that they can actually get a good image of what they're, they're feeling and they can kind of see it with their fingers and then they can eat it. Raccoons are constantly reaching out and grabbing things because, unlike many animals, they're intensely curious. For many other wild animals, when there's a strange object out there, they have a healthy fear of that. But raccoons are actually attracted to, to new novel objects, shiny objects, things that are not normal in the landscape. 
This attraction to the new and shiny is what Garrett calls neophilia. So because of their intelligence and their willingness to try new things, really we're just an opposable thumb away from raccoons being our overlords? That's something that we think about every now and then. It's like if they had an opposable thumb, they might be competition for us. McDonald exploited the fact that raccoons don't have opposable thumbs when she volunteered to help the city of Toronto create a raccoon-proof compost bin. And it worked. Until a curious raccoon made Toronto's morning news. There's no way he can get into it, right? Smells good in there. There's no... Really? (laughs) Was it disheartening to see raccoons get into your raccoon-proof compost bin? Actually, it wasn't disheartening at all. I thought it was fantastic, and I was so cheering for them to do it because, you know, it kind of shows that they can overcome everything. If city raccoons are more wily than their country cousins, McDonald says we can thank ourselves. So over generations of time, we are actually creating the perfect urban raccoon, the perfect urban warrior, because we are making it harder and harder and harder for them to get into our trash bins and get into our houses and get into those things we don't want them to get into. And those animals that do that end up surviving and they are the smart ones. So it is kind of our problem (laughs) that we've created. The lesson of this raccoon tale? The love-hate relationship between people and raccoons isn't going anywhere. Because our crafty, curious neighbors are going everywhere. So it's worth asking. What can we learn by watching raccoons? I think you can learn persistence. That's what I've learned from them. Is like, if you just don't give up, eventually you'll get into that trash can. It's just, you just gotta keep working at it. Among other things, this pandemic has created a new generation of homeless, and a young photographer is committed to documenting their distress. John Blackstone has her story. The portraits are stark, black and white, sometimes troubling. The expressions can be wild or serene or lost. They are all people who are homeless not the usual subjects for a portrait photographer, particularly one who began taking these photos at the age of 15. At first I was really naive to the reality of homelessness. And since I'd grown up in a small town, I hadn't seen a lot of external homelessness myself. Leah Denbach, now 20, has mostly photographed people living on the streets of Toronto, a two-hour drive from the town where she grew up. I began to realize these people are no different than ourselves, and they're just people who had misfortune in their life that led them to that situation. They need our help. This is my daughter, Leah. She's a photographer. Accompanied by her father, Tim, she asks her subjects to stand in front of a black backdrop. As Leah takes the photos, Tim records a conversation, learning how each life led to the streets. Do you have any family in Toronto at all? No. So you're all on your own here? Yes. Have you been surprised as you've been doing this that so many of the people you approach 
are willing to have their photographs taken, are willing to tell their stories. Definitely, we were surprised. And we began to realize that it was, firstly, probably for posterity's sake. These people don't want to be forgotten. And a lot of people experiencing homelessness, they don't have a lot of family, and this might be the little that they're leaving behind. Denbach has published her photos in three books. With each photo, there's a brief life story. While most of the photos have been taken in Canadian cities, Leah's work has received international attention. One of her photos was selected for the annual benefit auction, Art Walk, raising money for New York's Coalition for the Homeless. She was invited to speak and show her photos at the Women of the World Festival in Australia in 2016. In London this year, one of her portraits was reproduced as a mural by art activists working to bring attention to Britain's homeless population. It is all much more than Denbach and her father imagined when she took her first photos of homeless people almost five years ago. She mainly began doing it for artistic reasons because they have such interesting faces. Their faces tell stories. But then as we got to meet these people and and hear their stories and, and get to know them, our sense of empathy began to grow. So we're not just doing it for artistic reasons anymore. The family already had reason to have compassion for those living on the streets. As a child, Leah's mother, Sarah, was abandoned in India. I, too, was homeless when I was three. I was found on the streets of Calcutta. And at that time, a police officer, he picked me up. And he knew that Mother Teresa didn't turn any children away. Dropped me off at the orphanage. And I lived with her for two years. And then I was adopted to Canada at the age of five. It was amazing that I was given a second chance. And then we, we help these others that are on the streets now. And we raise money for them. All profits from sales of Denbox books are donated to organizations that help the homeless. The need has become even greater as the pandemic has created new difficulties and new dangers for those with no home. Their lives that were already hard before the pandemic have become almost unbearable. Women that we photographed with masks, their masks actually were broken, um, so they had to like hold them to their face, which I think makes it more sad and almost more dramatic because they didn't even have a proper mask. Leah and Tim give $10 to each person who agrees to have their photo taken. Their subjects undoubtedly need the money, but Leah believes most don't do it for the payment alone. This woman, Catherine, we met her in Toronto, and, and after the interview with her, she said, she grabbed my dad's hand, and with obvious emotion in her voice, she said, thank you so much for doing this. Most people just ignore me. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. 
but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Coleman McCarthy is a man on a mission to make the world a more peaceful place, one student at a time. He puts our Moraka to the test. I guess we can go right to the classroom now. Writer and teacher Coleman McCarthy begins each school year with a pop quiz and a cash prize. And I pull out $100. If anybody can answer the quiz, all names, it's yours. Mo, I want I wanted you to take the quiz. Okay. Who was Robert E. Lee? He was the general of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia. Yes. I started off confidently. Who was Napoleon? Um, He was a guy with a complex. Yes, the French general. Good. (laughs) It's looking good. But then... Emily Balch. um, She's not the woman who wouldn't go out of her house in Massachusetts and wrote poetry. No. Uh, Emily Balch was a Nobel Peace Prize winner that founded the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom... Nor could I identify Jody Williams, a Nobel winner for her work with landmines, or Jeanette Rankin, the first woman elected to Congress and the only member to vote against American involvement in both world wars. Mo, don't feel bad. It's always safe money. I can always count on American education. For 38 years, Coleman McCarthy has been trying to give away that $100 to the more than 30,000 high school and college students in the Washington, D.C. area who have taken his course in peace studies. A former columnist for the Washington Post, McCarthy has spent his life preaching and teaching nonviolence. And there are options to deal with conflicts in other ways. But we don't teach them the other way, so they look on people like me, well, you're one of those old 60s hippies, one of those old liberals, still hanging around, aren't you? McCarthy's own journey began 82 years ago. Raised on New York's Long Island, he went to Spring Hill College in Alabama, where he pursued his first passion. And I went there for 18 reasons, Mo. It had, it had a golf course on the campus. He turned pro his senior year. But he'd also discovered the writings of Trappist monk and social activist Thomas Merton. And driving back home from Alabama, he stopped at a monastery in Georgia. He ended up staying five and a half years. How come you didn't become a priest? I didn't like the taste of wine. His calling, it turned out, was journalism. In 1969, he began writing for the Washington Post, where he interviewed and befriended many of the 20th century's most prominent peace advocates. I get a fair amount of mail every week from readers around the country who call me a fool, jerk, no nothing. Don't let his jovial manner fool you. And then I read my negative mail. Uh... McCarthy is nothing short of radical in his opposition to the violence he sees all around us. He doesn't believe we should have a standing army. Do you think we should have border security? I don't believe in borders. Uh, the borders are artificially created, uh, mostly by military action. He has no use for the national anthem. I've never stood up for the Star Spangled Banner, because that is a war song. It's about bombing people. It's about rockets. It's about a useless war. He's against both the death penalty and abortion. But I don't criticize anybody who's had abortions. I don't want the government 
involved. But I do think we ought to educate everybody that there are other means to solve an unwanted pregnancy. If you think you know how McCarthy votes, well, he's never voted. His commitment to nonviolence extends beyond humankind, which is why he hasn't eaten meat in decades. Is anything you're wearing from an animal? No, my shoes are not leather, but good try. He doesn't own a car. Instead, he bikes to work. I do have a little dark side to me, though. Which is? About my bicycle. I love it when there are traffic jams. There they are just polluting the atmosphere, and I breeze right on through, and for a couple of seconds, I feel so morally superior. He brings about 20 speakers a semester to his class at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School in Maryland, where he teaches on a volunteer basis. That's right, McCarthy doesn't get paid to teach here. Guest speakers have included Nobel laureates Mared Corrigan, Mohammed Yunus, and Adolfo Perez Esquivel. And then you brought in a maintenance worker from uh, the school. I bring in Lily Flores, who was the cleaning lady at the school, who fled El Salvador when she was 14, never went past sixth grade. Caroline Viasis, Kyle Ramos, and Gabrielle Mizell were all students when we dropped in on McCarthy's class before the pandemic. How is your life going to be different after you leave here for having taken this course? So originally I was thinking of maybe going into a creative field, um, but now I'm looking for something more, like, uh, I guess, practical, like that where I'm actually hands-on helping people. So I'm thinking of being a social worker, Right. For me, it's kind of just installed a sense of responsibility that um, that I kind of need to like help other people and just help our world we're in. He also like, just brings out the best in people. He sees the strength in us, and he makes sure that like every student knows how important they are, which is really awesome. McCarthy's class has no exams and no grades. He considers grades academic violence. Would you agree? Um, I would agree. <laughs> Peace education. Is that your calling in life? Well, my calling in life is to be a good husband and a loving father and a loving husband. I think that comes first. He's been married to his wife, Mav, for 53 years. The couple has three sons. It's one of the dark secrets about the peace movement. So many of the great peacemakers were wretched people at home. Uh, They were cruel in ways we rarely hear about. Gandhi was an awful husband and father, a very domineering husband. Peace Uh, begins at home. Yes, exactly. While Coleman McCarthy's class has no exams or grades, he does send his students home with one important assignment. Every class, I say, your homework is to tell someone you love them today. And if you can't find someone to tell them that you love them, look a little harder. And if you still can't find them, call me up. I know where all the unloved people are. They're everywhere. You're a thief and a liar. I only lied about being a thief. I don't do that anymore. Steal. Lie. George Clooney's acting chops were on full display in the movie Ocean's Eleven. This morning, he's in conversation about his latest film with Tracy Smith. Come in, Ether. This is Barbo Observatory. Are you receiving this? Yep. That's him. Is anyone out there? In our galaxy alone, there are billions of stars. At least one of them 
has the potential to support life. In the futuristic thriller, The Midnight Sky, George Clooney is a lone scientist trying to warn astronauts away from an Earth that is no longer habitable, and all while he's caring for a young child. I understand. For the movie, Clooney grew a beard, dropped some weight, and put on his director's hat. Take a deep breath. You haven't been taking on a lot of acting roles. No. What was it about this project that was so compelling that you decided to direct and act in it? I saw the part and I thought, well, this is a really great part. And then I had an idea of how to tell the story, and so I called up Netflix and said, you know, I think I, I, think I have a take on it. As we see Earth, in case what we want to do is, with our graphic, is have it just get enveloped. So you're going to watch it go from blue to brown. Okay, so let's try it that way. The film, in theaters and on Netflix December 23rd, is both powerful and poignant. And don't even ask about the ending. Clooney shot it all last year, just before the real world shut down. Are you enjoying being home all the time Mm -hmm. now? Well, look, no. (laughs) Of course not. We met George at his home in L.A., where he spent the past few months with his wife, human rights lawyer Amal Clooney, their two kids, and a whole lot of time on his hands. It's been a while since I did, you know, 15 loads of laundry in a day and mop floors and, you know, all these doors over here I stained. Um, And it was, you know... I always say I felt like my mother in 1964 because <laughs> she had two kids and no help, and I don't know how she did it now. I have more sympathy for her now than ever. And have you been cutting your own hair? Mm-hmm. I've been cutting my own hair for 25 years. So it has nothing to do with quarantine? No. Look, I have, my hair is like really like straw, you know, and so it's easy to cut. You can't really make too many mistakes. So years ago, uh, I bought a, a thing called a Flowbee, which when we you were did kid, not. when I was a kid, yeah. The infomercial, the yeah, Flowbee. This ingenious device lets you give yourself and family perfect haircuts every time. Yes. It comes with a vacuum cleaner yes. and the clippers. Yeah, I still have it. Stop it. You I, don't use it. My haircuts take literally two minutes. I go, is, is, the, the, is this Flowbee? Yeah, it's Flowbee. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, listen, man, it works. <laughs> now, you know, I wouldn't do it to my wife. You would use my hair treatment. Your hair treatment. Excuse me. In case you're keeping track, Clooney and his flow-bead hair have made more than four dozen films and picked up two Oscars along the way. Sometimes it's impossible to save a kid's life, and the only thing we can do is save them from suffering. He first came to fame as a doctor in the NBC series ER, but he was hardly an overnight success. He'd struggled in Hollywood for years after moving out from his Kentucky home with little more than the shirt on his back. It was 1982 when I wanted to move out to uh, L.A., and I had a beat-up 76 Monte Carlo, rust all over it. I would fill it with oil and check the gas, and I drove it out here in three days. I didn't turn it off. Because I was afraid I couldn't turn it back on. And uh, I got here, broke down, and I got a bicycle, and I rode to auditions all around town for uh, a year and a half. On a bike? Yeah. Now 59 and a millionaire many times over, he keeps busy with the Clooney Foundation for Justice that grew out of his work in places like South Sudan. All of you should know that um, what you said here today will be heard and listened to around the world. 
But the midnight sky was one of his most demanding jobs to date. This scene, where he's separated from the little girl, was shot in a real Arctic snowstorm. I see you! How tough was it to shoot that? That was the very first week of shooting. We were in Iceland. So we went out, it's 40 degrees below zero, and it's 70-mile-an-hour wind gusts. And I was doing stuff without goggles, so my eyelids would freeze shut after about a little over a minute. And so we'd, I could only do a take for that long, and then I'd have to go in, and they'd take a blow dryer and get my eyelashes And open blow dry your eyelashes. So I could go back out. It seems like an action film. But Clooney says it's really about human beings' need to connect across the universe or just across a room. I would say one of the themes of the film is that idea of having someone to care for mm -hmm. can keep you going. In your own life, does having someone to care for change things? Yes. There is no question that having a, a mall in my life changed everything for me. No question about that. Um, it was the first time that everything uh, that she did and everything about her was infinitely more important than anything about me. And then we had these, these two knuckleheads, and it is very fulfilling and something I wasn't at all, didn't see coming. So, you know, when we, we never talked about marriage when we were dating, and I asked her out of the blue, took her a long time to say yeah. I was on my knee for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I finally said, look, I'm going to throw my hip out. <laughs> we told that story to her parents, and they're like, there's something wrong with his hip. <laughs> and, then, and we never talked about having kids. And then one day we just said, what do you think? And, you know, and then we go to the doctor, and, you know, you do the ultrasound, and they're like, yeah, hey, you got a baby boy. I was like, baby boy, fantastic. And they go, and you got another one there. And I was like, I was up for one. <laughs> yeah, again, I'm like, I'm old. And all of a sudden, it's like two, and I literally, you know, it's hard to get me to not talk. And I just stood there for like 10 minutes just staring at this piece of paper going, two. Silently. But now it's silent. <laughs> but I'm so glad they have each other, you know. It is a wonderful thing, right? It's unbelievable. All right, guys, that's it. Congratulations. We got this one done. Thank you. When he's not making movies, Clooney says he spends a third of his time with his foundation, but quietly. For a guy who's now made a few space movies, George Clooney is, forgive me for this, remarkably down to earth. So do you, I'm curious, mm. just watching you, you're very self-deprecating. And I'm mm. wondering, is, is that something that is in your nature or do you work on that? I think it's in my nature. I think, you know, a lot of times the, the secret is you take the gun out of their hands before they can shoot you, you know. I just, I think that that's a, it's a healthy way of looking at the world. There's a line in, I think it was a movie called Out of the Past. Uh, Robert Mitchum says, I never learned anything from hearing myself talk. It's kind of a good, it's a good measure to go by. With Califasane now, we take flight to an island that's truly for the birds and the people who study them. Now, these birds, they all know you, but they never met me. Are they a little suspicious? Uh, yeah, they're very suspicious. <laughs> they, uh, they don't particularly like us either, though. Every year, 
thousands of seabirds, terns, come to these islands off the coast of New Hampshire. And every year, scientists like Liz Craig come too. We try to be nice, but they don't really uh, appreciate it. The birds may not appreciate it. You've been pecked? Oh, yes. Daily. <laughs> but the researchers are here to protect them. Yes! And their chicks. Beautiful baby. This is one of the only nesting sites, um, certainly the largest nesting site um, that they have. So in order for them to have this active breeding colony, it does require that people like us are out here making sure that this island is still available and doesn't get taken over by other competing birds. So when the chicks hatch, they can't fly. Craig and, and her research assistants, Alia Caldwell and Beckley Stearns, are studying two types of terns, the common tern and the not-so-common roseate tern. How close did terns come to extinction? Seabirds generally are the most threatened group of birds on Earth. There was a, a huge population reduction for the seabirds that we're talking about around the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s, when these birds were actually hunted for their plumage. In the 1950s and 60s, environmental contaminants in the oceans again put the terns, especially the endangered roseate terns, at risk. So that's the species that we, we pay the most attention to. Each spring, the birds all squeeze onto these two tiny piles of rock, White Island and Seavey Island, to lay their eggs. With human development, we've certainly contracted the amount of space that is available for these birds. Even here, these birds usually have to share space with tourists, but not this year. If I was compiling a census of this island, it would be you three and a whole bunch of birds, right? Uh, yes, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, this team of bird protectors was quarantined with the terns for about four months, beginning in April. No, we're not allowed to leave. You have ankle bracelets or something? How does this work? I mean, there's an ocean, and we don't have a suitable boat to get to the mainland, so... Being on an island, surrounded by nothing but birds, it doesn't sound so bad. A lot of people, especially my friends, were asking me if they could volunteer this year. <laughs> it was a very popular idea. This program was started by researcher Jen Seavey. That's Seavey as in Seavey Island, named for one of her ancestors. The one amazing thing about COVID was that there was a lot less people on that island. So on the whole, it probably was good for the birds. Their data show a record number of terns, nearly 7,000, nested on the island this year. As for the other inhabitants... Okay. you think it was good for the researchers? I think it gave the researchers a really different experience. It gave them their own island. In that sense, it was all about the research. They lived together in an old lightkeeper's house. The outhouse. The outhouse. That stood the test of time. Updated with all the amenities of home, or, or some of them. Yeah, well, this is a faucet, but just because it's a faucet doesn't mean there's running it's water. It's a decoy faucet. Yeah. Caldwell says on this island, everyone's competing for the best food. If you were to have an argument on this island, what would you be arguing about? Jalapeno potato chips. <laughs> Jalapeno <laughs> potato chips. As breeding season ends, it's time for everyone to leave the island. The terns head south. Our common terns probably are mostly spending the winter in Argentina. 
roseate terns probably down in Brazil. So by the time they come back from their long-distance migration in the spring, we want to be here to make sure that the island is still available for them. Until then, the researchers will return to their own nests. I'm excited to finally come off the island knowing that I'm symptomless and COVID-free and that I could safely and comfortably share a meal with my grandparents. You may have caught our special on pets. This morning, the subject is pet peeves. We have an appointment with Dr. John LaPook. Lately, I've been thinking about whether pet peeves are actually a good thing. Like a pet dog, can they provide comfort? My pet peeves mostly have to do with the use of language. Something cannot be very unique. It cannot be very one-of-a-kind. It is either unique or not unique. See how I got a little agitated there? I blew off some steam about something that means absolutely nothing in the scheme of things. And I do think I'm feeling a little bit better now. Pet peeves are just important enough to irritate us, but not important enough to make a difference in our lives. And they have to be both barely important and recurrent. So you would not call breaking your leg in a ski accident a pet peeve. Oh! Which brings us to literally versus figuratively. If your head literally exploded, there better be brains on the wall. I'm a doctor, so I know this. And why ever start a sentence with, to tell you the truth, does that mean everything else you've been telling me is a lie? My favorite pet peeve is the call center person who politely asks, may I please have the correct spelling of your last name? (laughs) I'm so glad you said correct, otherwise I would have answered LaPook. Q-R-Z-Z-M-W, LaPook. In this age of social media, should you keep your pet peeves to yourself? Should you silently seethe or try to inform? My vote, as we hope to enter an era of increased civility, keep them to yourself. There are enough people weighing in on other people's faults. Here's what I think. Our pet peeves actually serve a purpose. While they're irritating, they let us quietly vent about something that truly does not matter without ruining somebody else's day. So embrace your pet peeves, but don't let them bite anyone else. Like all pets, they can be very therapeutic. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.